0: Good morning. Good morning. We're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16 this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, it's uh, page 831. Uh, my name is Gaten Rizzoli. Uh Most people call me Gator. Uh, with <laughs> as time goes on, it increases. It sounds a little better, but. Uh, My wife's name is Jane, and we have a seven-year-old son named Nathan and a five-year-old daughter named Angie. Uh, And Jane and I have been attending Joy since uh, 2004, 2005, so time flies. All right, Matthew chapter 26, now that I gave you a little bit of time to uh, get there. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. <coughs> now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head And as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring the ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. It is no uh, blessing to take for granted. It is a a humongous blessing, Lord, that we have your word, uh, that you have revealed yourself to us in such a powerful way as this. Uh, It also can be reminding to us, Lord, that not everybody has access to your word now and, and today or hardly at all. And we pray that access to your word, Lord, would increase um, and we pray especially, Lord, for persecuted Christians, that they uh, could have access to your word. We pray, Lord, that those who persecute would be drawn to repentance, would be drawn to new life in Christ, uh, Lord, that many would see uh, and come to know that treasure uh, that is in Christ, and, and to uh, to come to you, Lord, and and drink from the river of life, and we pray, Lord, that those who persecute would be drawn to repentance and new life in Christ. And we pray that you would give strength uh, to your people and give us a, a, a hunger and a thirst, Lord, for righteousness, uh, for your word, and for fellowship, and for good works. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, please draw us to yourself. Please, please help us, Lord, to come to you and to draw near to you each day. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your Holy Spirit. Uh, in, in a powerful aid 24 uh, 7 and as we as we uh, venture through your word and we venture through life's decisions and Lord we've all had all different kinds of weeks uh, some some here have had amazing weeks some have had really difficult weeks and Lord you know every hair on our heads and we thank you Lord that you know our uh, you know our circumstances and you know our complications much better than we do and and you're never overwhelmed and uh, we just praise you Lord that you're always with us and that's your Emmanuel we pray Lord that you would empower uh, brother Rob now as he comes to preach your word uh, just give him strength and clarity uh, just a, a clear mind and a train of thought and we just pray Lord that that you would be glorified and that you would be honored through this sermon and through this message Thank you, Lord, that we could be here uh, together as a family of believers in Christ. And um, we just praise and thank you, Lord, that you're so good to us um, at all times. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: All right, good morning. Oh, thank you, Gaten. Or maybe I should say, thank you, Gator. For reading that. Uh, speaking of the Gator, I was talking with him yesterday um, and uh, we were just talking about the last few weeks. I've had a, a, a very busy last three weeks. I remember sitting back there three weeks ago and just thinking to myself, oh man, I've got to preach in three weeks and I've got to get ready for this. And I have a lot on my plate, a lot uh, that, that we've been dealing with. And uh, selfishly, I thought to myself, I. I kind of wish I wasn't doing this uh, just because of of what I had going on, but I'm so thankful to have been able to prepare this. This passage behind me uh, really ministered to me over the last three weeks. It was what I needed, and my prayer is that it would minister to you. My prayer has been two things, that God would be glorified and that you would be fed. And so that is... Um, what I hope will happen here. This is a very fitting passage for us to look at uh, because we will be remembering the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus this next week. Now, most scholars think that this story, specifically the story of the anointing of Jesus, took place on the Saturday night before Good Friday. So this would have been last night when this took place. Uh, And so it's very fitting that we look at that and remember it. In light of this, I want to start off with a question. So here's my question for you this morning. What do you think of when you think of the cross? So what do you think of when you think of the cross or crucifixion? And what do you think your, your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors... What do you think they think of when they think of the cross? I think it's safe to say that whatever we think of when we think of the cross, it's likely very different from what first century Jews would have thought of when they thought of that. No one, I think I can confidently say this, no one during the time of Jesus would have had a gold cross around their neck or a wooden cross in their home, on the wall. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I actually like those things. I'm just making the point that the way we think about the cross today is starkly different from the way they would have thought about it. No one celebrated the cross 2,000 years ago. No one adored it. No one sang about it. No one had jewelry in the shape of a cross. It was rightly seen by the Jews as a disgraceful Gentile execution device that the Romans used to humiliate them. And not understanding that, none of us fully understand that, because we didn't grow up in that society, but not understanding that can can prevent us from seeing what is going on in this passage. And so in light of that, we're going to look at Matthew 26. So for our sermon today, I want to do two things. Number one, I want to explain what is happening. What is happening in this passage? There's a lot happening. What's going on? Specifically, I want to look at verse 7 and try to answer the question, why does this woman anoint Jesus? So that's the second thing. So two things. What is happening? And then secondly, why is it happening? What's happening in this passage and then secondly, why is this woman doing, doing excuse me, what she did? What and why? So let's start in verse 1. Verse 1 reads, When Jesus had finished all these sayings. All these sayings. What sayings? Verse 1 of chapter 26 comes on the heels of chapter 24 and 25. And in those two preceding chapters, Jesus gives his disciples a preview of the second coming and the final judgment. That's what's going on right before verse 1. This teaching takes place on the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem, and he finishes this two-chapter discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse for that reason. He finishes it by telling his disciples the sobering and awe-inspiring and fear-provoking story of how he will one day sit on his glorious throne, those are his words, and he will gather all the nations before him. And this is not a parable. This is going to happen one day. He proceeds to tell them that he will separate people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That is quite a story. That is quite a story. He will be on his glorious throne. He will judge the nations. Verse 1, when Jesus finished all these sayings, that's what he finishes talking about. And now he is going to shift. There is a shift going on. When Jesus finished all these sayings, He said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Talk about a shift. Jesus now shifts the focus from the end times to the Passover, and specifically his death. The Passover and his death, they go together. The Passover is coming, and now it's time to remind his disciples that he will be crucified. He is the Passover lamb who will be crucified. This is not the first time that Jesus has predicted his death on the cross. In the book of Matthew, it's actually the fourth time. I did not know that uh, when I prepared. This is the fourth time he's done it. He did it previously three other times in chapters 16, 17, and 20. And every time he says he's going to be killed, Those three times, every time he says he's going to be killed, he also says, I will be raised. He puts them together. You may remember Matthew 16. Jesus makes this prediction of his death and resurrection, and then Peter, who thinks he knows better, pulls him aside and, quote, rebukes him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Think about that. Peter pulls Christ aside privately and gives it to him a little bit and rebukes him. That's the first reaction we read about. He predicts his death and resurrection. He's rebuked by the disciples. In the next chapter, Matthew 17, he does it again. And here's the reaction it says. In Matthew 17, it just says, quote, they were greatly distressed. Greatly distressed. It doesn't say anything more. They were greatly distressed. I don't think they knew what to make of this. In Matthew 20, he's going to predict his death and resurrection a third time, and there is no recorded response from the disciples. They don't say anything that we have recorded. They don't rebuke them. It doesn't say they're distressed. It doesn't say they ask questions. There's nothing, and they are moving on. And now, the fourth time happens in Matthew 26. And I think it's safe to say, I mean, we don't know exactly what's going through their minds, but I think we can say that the disciples do not want to hear about this. They do not know what to make of this. Peter to the point that he rebukes Christ. And I was thinking about this, uh, you know, just trying to, trying to, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of these disciples, of Christ, of this whole situation. What is happening I don't know if you've ever had to talk to somebody about a difficult thing. Maybe it's somebody you've ministered to. Maybe it's a loved one, a family member, a friend, a coworker, and you knew, okay, I got to say something to this person. It may hurt, but it is going to be for their healing. We have to go there. And you try to do it gently. You try to do it humbly. You try to be really compassionate. And you start to 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 go there, and you get a, we are not going there. You, you get a no-fly zone, not now. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's what's going on. Jesus needs to bring this up. This is what's happening, and the disciples, they can't go there. They're not going there. I don't know, but I tend to think that's, that's what's going on. And so in chapter 26, verse 2, Jesus predicts his death The fourth time, and then we are taken to the palace of Caiaphas, Caiaphas, excuse me, who was the high priest. And we see a behind the scenes look at these religious leaders. They're religious leaders, they're the leaders of the Jewish people, God's chosen people, and they are plotting to put him to death. That is how they're going to use their power. They are plotting to put him to death, but they have one condition. Did you notice that? One condition, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Not during the feast. What feast? Passover, right? This is a Passover. Now, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, it was estimated one year that approximately 250,000 Passover lambs were slaughtered. 250,000. Now, I wasn't planning on doing this, but I'm going to take a page out of Jason's book. I'm going to ask the kids a question. I may regret it, but I'm going to try to ask them a question here. Josephus says one year, there were 250,000 sheep slaughtered. No less than 10 people had one sheep. Households would combine. So we have about 10 people per sheep Let's see what kids are paying attention in math class. 250,000 sheep, no less than 10 people per one sheep. How many people is that? Where are all the kids? They're going silent. Where are the kids? 2.5 million, that is correct. About 2.5 million people would have been, some of you have been to Jerusalem. About 2.5 million people would have been in Jerusalem or around it. So this is a massive amount of people. And Caiaphas and the religious leaders are saying, we're getting rid of him, but not during the feast. Let's wait till after. We'll do it in dark. We'll do it in in secret. And there won't be an uproar. This is not the first time that people have tried to kill Christ. He has been hunted since his birth. King Herod tried to kill him. They tried to kill him when he was an adult by throwing him off a cliff At Nazareth, they tried to kill him after he healed the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. They've tried to kill him many times. They're going to try again. Every time they try to kill him, their plans are thwarted. And now, the one time they want to delay killing him, their plans are going to be thwarted again. God is going to see to it that his son is killed and put to death, put on the cross on his timetable, not theirs. It's going to happen during the feast. God the Father is going to have the Passover lamb put to death during the feast. God is sovereignly in control of this whole thing. So God's Jesus Christ hour is coming. They want to wait. It's going to happen. It's going to happen very soon. In verse 6, we're talking about what is happening. In verse 6, we move from the palace of this high priest This fake high priest, that's who he is, to the lowly house of a leper, Simon the leper. Now, we don't know much about Simon the leper. Some people actually think Simon the leper is the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We don't know that. But we do know that he was once a leper. He's no longer a leper. If he was still a leper, he would not be having a dinner party at his house. Um, Nobody would, would be there. We don't know this either, but we can only imagine he was very likely healed by Christ because Jesus had such a prolific healing ministry. So they are gathering in the house of this Simon the leper. People know him, Simon the leper. That's where they are. And in addition to this story in Matthew 26, uh, there are two other parallel accounts of this same story of the anointing. Okay, there's two other parallel accounts, Mark 14 And John 12, so what I'm going to do, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to take Matthew 26 behind me, Mark 14, John 12, and try to paint a picture of what's going on here so we understand what is happening. We know, for instance, from John 12, from this parallel account in John 12, that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are all present at the dinner party. They're all there. Specifically, John 12, 2 says that Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at table. The same Lazarus who was raised from the dead in John 11. So here we see a foretaste of what we will all who are in Christ enjoy one day. We will be raised and we will be seated with Christ at a table. And Lazarus has that foretaste. We see that happening for him. So Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are there. In the midst of this scene, a woman comes up to Jesus, and we also know from John 12, who is this woman? We know that it's Mary. Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She's the one who comes up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. So that ointment would have been a type of oil. It was nard. That's what they called it. The ointment is is an oil she comes up it's in an alabaster flask alabaster would have been a very very expensive marble so it's not just the oil inside that is extremely expensive but the marble itself was very expensive it would have been kind of round at the bottom narrow neck at the top it would have been plugged or corked somehow and she walks in with this Mark 14, now I don't think it says it uh, in Mark, excuse me Matthew 26, but in Mark 14 we read that Mary broke the flask and poured it over his head. so she doesn't just uncork it and pour it on him. she breaks it. I don't know how she breaks it, but she breaks it. She broke it and poured it. She broke it and poured it. I could not help but thinking as I prepared of that. that, That broken and poured. Christ's body in a few days is going to be broken. His blood will be shed. It will be poured. And just as people ridicule this, they're going to ridicule it, and they don't understand it, they are going to ridicule Christ in a few days on the cross. They will not understand what he's doing. So we see a parallel there. So she broke it and poured it, and all the disciples said amen <laughs> that's not what happens they do not no one says amen that we have recorded the passage tells us that mary gets ridiculed and not just by just it's 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 really something when you think about this not by the enemies of jesus she gets ridiculed by his disciples you see this ointment verse 9 could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. To say that it could have been sold for a large sum is accurate. Approximately 300 denarii, which would have been approximately a year's worth of wages. So it's a lot of money. The disciples call what she did a waste. And we see from the passage that they were indignant. Indignant. Mark 14 specifically says that they scolded her. So they are, they're not just rolling their eyes. They are, they are verbally expressing their disappointment in what she just did. In John 12, this response of publicly objecting to Mary's anointing of Jesus is attributed to Judas specifically. So in, in Matthew 26, it's the disciples who are voicing their displeasure In John 12, we read that it's Judas. It's not a contradiction. Probably what's happening is all the disciples are upset, and Judas is acting in some way as a ringleader or a spokesperson on behalf of them all to say what he thinks and to tell that it was a waste, to say it was a waste. In response to the disciples' response, Jesus rebukes them publicly. He then goes on to say that she did this act to prepare him for burial, a statement that we will come back to. And then he announces in verse 13, quote, "Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her." And that is a prophecy that is being fulfilled as I speak. As it's been fulfilled over and over and over again. Many times since Jesus made this statement. Jesus was who he said he was. Or else I would not be talking about this right now. He's seen to it that we will hear about it. He's done this over and over again. This story has gone. It got legs. Because he said it would. This wasteful display is apparently more than Judas can handle. And so in verses 14 to 16, he leaves and conspires with the religious leaders to to betray Jesus, and he is paid 30 pieces of silver the cost of a slave, which in our modern 2023 day is about $10,000. So he's going to get paid about 10 grand, and he is going to betray Christ. And it's interesting, we actually talked about this last week in our Sunday school class here. Uh, Do you know which, which one of the Uh, Twelve brothers. We have twelve disciples here. Remember the twelve brothers? Which one specifically sold Joseph into slavery? Whose idea was it? Judas. I'm sorry, Judah. It's actually the same name. Judas and Judah are the same name. So we see Joseph being betrayed by his brothers. He's the favored son. He's going to get sold for silver. Jesus is going to get sold for silver. And in Genesis 50, we read that what God meant for evil, what Satan meant for evil, excuse me, God meant for good, for the saving of many lives. And he's going to do that again here. He's going to save many lives through this evil act. The greatest evil ever committed, he's going to turn for the greatest good ever done to humanity. Amen. I don't know what else to say to that. Amen. And so that is the story. That is what's happening. And so for the remainder of our time, <clears throat> let's look at why this happened. So that's the what. That's the one verses 1 to 16. That is the what. Why does this happen? Specifically, why does this anointing happen? That's what I want to look at. And I want to look at why Mary anoints Jesus because clearly Jesus makes a big deal about it. He points this out. He commends what the disciples reject. And so we're going to look and see why she does this. Why does she anoint Jesus? Well, here's what we know. We know that Mary doesn't anoint Jesus because she's trying to earn anything. I think we know that, but we need to say that. We need to acknowledge that. Mary is not trying to purchase anything. The grace of God is not for sale. God gives it freely to whomever he pleases to give it to. He is sovereign. It's his will. It cannot be bought. The grace of God, the gospel of God is not for sale. So she's not trying to earn anything. She's already been saved and blessed by him. This is an overflow. So why does she do it? I think we could say a few accurate things. All right. For one, we could say that Mary anoints Jesus because she loves him. That is clear. Mary loves Jesus. I think we could also say that she does it because she treasures him. She values him. It's obvious she values him, or else she wouldn't have broken the flask and poured the ointment on him. So she treasures him. She loves him, and she treasures him. That is all true, and we could say that. But what is interesting is that when Jesus says why she anoints him, he does not give those reasons that I just mentioned. That's not what he says. Did you notice that? He says, verse 12, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. That's why she did it. To prepare me for burial. Now, what does that mean? It's kind of a a cryptic saying on Christ's behalf. What is he talking about? What did Mary actually know? I was thinking of that, too, as I was preparing. What did she know? Did she actually know Jesus was going to die later that week? Was she literally trying to prepare him for burial? Or is this just something that Jesus credits to her, even though she may not have really understood that that's what she was doing? It's something we should think about because he says she did it to prepare him for burial. Why, why did she do it? Interestingly, given how close in proximity his death is, he's going, to be, he's going to be buried in less than a week, this anointing actually does prepare his body for burial, whether she realizes that or not and the next time that women come to anoint his body it's actually going to be Sunday morning and too late he's already going to be risen so this does actually anoint his body for burial but again does does she know that this is what she is doing okay we don't know exactly what is in Mary's mind but here's what we do know about Mary let's talk about Mary Mary knew something of the reality of death and resurrection. Didn't she? Her brother, she saw her brother dead. She saw him raised from from the dead. She knows Jesus is the resurrection and the life. She knows that very intimately. So she knows that. We know that about Mary. Here's what we also know. We know that she is the one who sat at the feet of Jesus. Luke 10 is where we see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, and her sister Martha is preparing the meal, and, quote, distracted with much serving. Martha does not like this, and so asks Jesus to tell Mary to help her. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So we see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus. Why do you sit at the feet of a teacher? To listen to him. She's hearing what he says. She's very likely hearing him talk about his crucifixion. And she is keyed in to what is coming out of his mouth. We know that. So here's what I think is happening. And why Jesus connects connects her anointing to his burial. I think Mary is seeing something, or should I say embracing something, that the disciples up until this point are refusing to see and refusing to embrace. What they are refusing to see and refusing to embrace is the reality that Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb. And he is about to be slaughtered. And everything is moving to this. Here's what John MacArthur, who's a pastor, here's what he says about Mary's act. He says this specifically about this passage. Mary's been sitting at the feet of Jesus. The block-headed disciples may not understand what is going to happen. They are blockheads. But she understands it. She understands that he's moving to his death And she understands something of what it means. And she understands something of the resurrection. She maybe remembers that he said he would rise again every time he said he would die. And somehow it's in her mind that this is it. And she wants to prepare him for that because she knows that in it is her redemption. She understood what the disciples did not want to understand. And I think that's what's happening. And I think that's why Jesus said, she's preparing me for burial. Jesus has spoken loudly about his death and resurrection. Do you hear it? Do you hear him speak about it? Mary heard him. The disciples did not hear him. If you think back, even Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, proclaimed this very loudly himself when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The entire Old Testament points to this. Everything is moving to this. And I think it's important to note that the issue with the disciples is not an intellectual issue. All right, They are blockheads, but it's because their hearts are actually hard and it's affected their minds. They can't see what's in front of them. It's not that Mary's quick and they're slow. It's that Mary knows she needs Christ to die for her. At this point in the story, she knows she needs that. So why would the disciples not embrace this? I think it's for the same reason that we don't always embrace it. For all of us, at at some point in our lives, we rejected this. Even if we, we are currently in Christ, we've rejected this. We didn't want to hear this story. And it's because the cross of Jesus Christ is not just a declaration that God loves you. I want to make this really clear. The cross is a declaration of God's love for us. That's why we celebrate it. It's not just that declaration, though. It is also a declaration that that is what we deserve. It also says that because, after all, he died in our place. We deserve to be there. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. I deserve to be cursed, and so do all of you, because of our sin. That is not a popular message, and apparently it wasn't popular 2,000 years ago either. Mary embraces Jesus Christ as her Savior, as her Passover lamb, because she is a theologian of the cross. I'm going to end here. I want to explain what I mean by that. She's a theologian of the cross. So Martin Luther said that there are two types of people in the world. There are theologians of the cross and there are theologians of glory. And he said everybody's a theologian whether they realize it or not. There's just good theologians and bad theologians. But everybody's a theologian. Everybody believes something about God, even the atheist. Even the atheist deep down knows of God and believes something about God. Mary is a theologian of the cross. According to Martin Luther, a theologian of the cross is someone who embraces the cross even though it means the death of their old man. He is someone who sees that even his best works are tainted with sin. The theologian of the cross believes that God is both right And just to send him to hell. And that his only hope, his only hope is that God would pay his ransom. He sees that his righteousness is a house of cards. People may pat him on the back, but he knows what is within. And for that reason, he looks to Christ to be his righteousness. And he exists to make much of God. And he says with Paul, the theologian of the cross says with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Mary is a theologian of the cross. If someone is not a theologian of the cross, that person is a theologian of glory. Now, what what does that mean? A theologian of glory is not called a theologian of glory because that person is preoccupied with God's glory, but it's because that person is preoccupied with their own glory. They are married to their glory. They will not let go of it. When you peel back every layer and get to the heart of the theologian of glory, his identity is in himself and in his good works, not in Jesus Christ and not in his work. Unlike the theologian of the cross, the theologian of glory bypasses the cross. I don't need it, and goes right right by the cross. (laughs) Like Peter, he rebukes Jesus for talking about it too much. He uses religion, good works, and pious acts to make much of himself, not God. He's often in churches, too. It's interesting that the, that the people who here who are theologians of glory and betray Christ are religious people. It's not a coincidence. Caiaphas, Judas. The theologian of glory is offended by hell because how could God ever send a good person like him to hell. If he can't put Jesus to death like Caiaphas and Judas, he'll just get rid of Jesus by redefining him. And that's what we see today. So my question for you is, are you a theologian of the cross or are you a theologian of glory? And as I was, as I was uh, preparing this, I just think to myself, you know, look at the disciples. We see God's great mercy in this story, they are currently, I think they're more theologians of glory than theologians of the cross. They're, they're ridiculing Mary. And yet, in about a week, God is going to take their pride and shatter it in a million pieces. And who's going to fall the hardest? It's interesting, Peter will fall the hardest. He's the one who, who rebuked Christ, and he is going to be very humbled, but it's God's grace to him. All of us in this room were once theologians of glory. Some of you still are. I don't know who you are. The Holy Spirit knows. But here's the good news. God is in the great business of taking theologians of glory and making them theologians of the cross. That's what he does. So his mercy right now is for you. His mercy is for everyone here. Do you believe that you need Jesus to be your Passover lamb? Do you believe that? Do you need Jesus to die for you? Do you need Good Friday, which is coming up? Do you need Good Friday? Brothers and sisters, we need this upcoming week more than we could ever imagine. The beauty of the story of Mary's anointing And the beauty of Good Friday and the beauty of Resurrection Sunday is that this good God who should have punished all of us forever has actually become our Savior. And not just our Savior, but the very one who died in our place. There is no greater news in all the world. So may God bless you, and may God put this truth in all of our hearts. Because you know what? By nature, we're theologians of glory. But may God bless you this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We know that left to ourselves, we have much more in common with Caiaphas and Judas than with Mary. But we thank you for how you've transformed us We thank you, Lord, that you love your people, that you're a God of mercy. We thank you for this story. We thank you that you are more valuable than anyone or anything in all the world. That you, Father, did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all. We thank you, Lord, that right now we can have a tangible reminder of your grace, we can go to the, to the table and hold the bread and the cup. Lord, we're reminded that we did not work hard for that bread and that cup. There is nothing we did that produced it. It was given by you to us as a gift. You did all the work. And so, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. And we pray that you would transform us by your great and generous Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.